Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. So today we have with us, I believe this is a first act, so we have two guests. Um, the first is Maximilian Alvarez, uh, who is a columnist for The Baffler and the host of the Working Pod podcast. Um, and we have Ashling McRae. I hope I pronounced that correctly. You did. That was uh, beautiful. Oh, thank Christ. I, uh, <laughs> who is a contributing editor at Current Affairs. Um, and so, yeah, th- uh, thanks for coming on. Did I, did I miss anything? Anything I should have uh, plugged there? Now, you got Ashling's no, uh, very difficult uh, name right, but uh, you got the name of my podcast wrong. <laughs> What it's a uh, oh, no. so it's a uh, it's a uh, I'm just I'm teasing you. Uh, so the podcast is uh, is working people, but our um, Twitter handle is working pod. The Twitter handle is what matters. Exactly. <laughs> Work. Listen to working people. Find it at hashtag not hashtag at working pod. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. If you want to listen to me um, interview workers from around the country. And go on way too many political rants. Uh, check us out. Awesome. Yeah, our, our listeners definitely enjoy rants. Otherwise, they wouldn't listen. To <laughs> so thanks, thanks, uh, thanks for coming on. Our we yeah, have welcome. a kind of grab bag of topics today. Um, the first one is why is there no great conservative commentary, and. Um, you know, you you, sorry, comedy, not commentary. Making some. You're, you're right about both. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's true. Uh, uh, sort of a Biden gaffe there, or a John Kerry gaffe. Um, you know, you you have you you have a, a whole spectrum of very successful comedians on the left. You know, every late night show, even if even the ones that aren't like too good. Um, they all have a sort of broadly left of center perspective. You know, I, I tend to watch uh, the Colbert stuff, and I um, Colbert, uh, even if you don't agree with his politics, I don't think he's right about everything. Like he's inarguably a good comedian, um, and uh, you know, you got Chapo, various other um, sort of comedic enterprises coming from the left. Right-wing efforts to to try to replicate that or imitate it have just fallen on their face. And so, what is going on there? And maybe to set us up, I I my initial take on this is that comedy requires us like at least a modicum of playfulness. You know, one of the key aspects of humor is being. Uh, you know, not too serious. And the problem with conservative humor is that it tends to just sort of divert into spittle-flecked outrage uh, halfway through the joke. You know, um, you can't land the punchline because you're not actually thinking about the structure of the joke as such. You're just sort of like trying to be incredibly pissed off about Benghazi, or, you know, the Mueller investigation, or libs being triggered by this or that. There's no sort of playfulness there. You know, you can't be playful if all you have is anger. But 
that's a very unsophisticated, not a comedy expert, not terribly <laughs> funny myself. Um, so I'm interested to get, you know, various v- alternative perspectives from the real experts. <laughs> so um, I think that might be part of the reason, but I don't think it's necessarily the whole reason because you do definitely get um, liberal or left comics who do like rants. So, you know, you, you know, you have people like, uh, Bill Hicks or like George Carlin and stuff. Too. Um, they would go <laughs> yes. on rants that were still funny. Like they were, they were mad, but they were like, I guess, righteously mad or whatever, uh, you want to, you want to, uh, however you want to put it. Um, I think, so my, theory as to one of the main reasons why conservative comedy doesn't work very well is that in order to understand what is funny about something you need to understand the thing and i think conservatism often comes down to not wanting to understand things so one of the reasons i was thinking about this uh i don't know if it got any like traction in the u.s at all i don't think it did um but there was recently like a, a conservative a uh, parody columnist called Titania McGrath. Um, who did anyone follow this or see this? Nope. I unfortunately not. Okay, so um, it was basically uh, a parody of a sort of woke uh, SJW type character who would go on Twitter and say things like, uh, "I." think uh the queen should be non-binary or whatever the whatever the thing was um <laughs> and they were recently revealed oh surprise surprise this uh, sort of 30 year old woman uh, is actually a 45 year old male bald columnist i don't actually know if he's bald but in my mind he's bald <laughs> he's spiritually bald um and he did a bunch of sort of uh interviews in some of the main uk papers talking about how, oh, he felt he had to do this character because, you know, you can't say things anymore and the PC culture and the blah, blah, blah. Um, and lots of the sort of intellectual dark web type people were, you know, very interested in how brilliant and satirical this thing was. And the thing was, okay, so I've been a leftist for a very long time, but before I was a leftist, I was a comedy nerd. Um, and the main problem is it's just really, really shit, like just unbelievably shit. <laughs> and all the jokes were a variation. So they, they did this column where it's like, oh, the, the royal family, um, they should all be trans and they should have a non-binary baby and they should identify as a tree or whatever. It was the same, like, like the 4chan jokes from 2013, you know. And I think the thing is that you have to understand what's funny about things and the funny thing is if you want to satirize the left there's a lot of things that are funny about the left like if you wanted to satirize like an interminable four-hour meeting or like ridiculous infighting over like theorists who've been dead for 150 years that no one else cares about except for like two academics who are just completely mad at each other about something no that will never matter in any way and the different characters you meet there's a lot of like interesting stuff but you would have to actually know about that stuff and i think um so i the, i think part of the reason i got invited on was because i said 
one of the best comedy bits that's ever been done about the left is the Monty Python and the Holy Grail bit where uh, King Arthur meets some peasants who have formed an anarcho-syndicalist commune. And part of the reason why that is funny is because, like, when you watch it and you're a kid, first of all, your first response might be like, ah, ha, ha, what is this, like, silly politics thing? And then you get older and you find out, oh, that's actually, like, a legit thing. And the character actually describes it pretty well. And it's not even that the character is wrong, because he's right, like, he's living in a feudal society and he's saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't, uh, you know, famous line, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no uh, basis for a system of government, right? Which is still a... <laughs> Which is still a really memorable line, and it's a correct line. It's not that, oh, it's inherently funny that this person thinks something different. It's that the context is, you know, he's mass, he's got a massively inflated ego and a massively uh, overinflated sense of his power in the situation, um, and keeps banging on about uh, things while the uh, woman who forms the other part of the commune gets on with doing the work, which uh, is something that I think a lot of leftists can recognize in themselves right so that's kind of part of why i think conservative comedy doesn't work is because they don't really take an interest in what the left is so when they try to satirize the left they sort of fail to see what's funny about it and i think that's also true about other things they come across in general yeah, I would. I would also add, you know, for, in the Monty Python canon, the uh, uh, in Life of Brian, the the People's Front of Judea versus yeah, the Judean yeah, exactly. People's Front, and the satirizing <laughs> the splitism and the dogmatism of of you know sort of like pseudo revolutionary uh, activists is it's it's just really, I mean it it part. It, it reflects a knowledge of like the actual circumstances, and I think these like a lot of the Python guys were actually like philosophy majors and studied political theory and stuff, and so they sort of knew what they were talking about. And it wasn't yeah. this distorted caricature filtered through right wing media that they were. It was just like you know r ridiculous caricatures. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think you see like I still hear letters that I know like sarcastically refer to you know there's some split somewhere and they say oh it's a bit people's front of judea and people on the left and the right and apolitical people all still use that reference and that's how you know that it's good because like um there's a there's a truth to that right um i think there's also um again i don't know how much um clout it has in the u.s but one of the most famous like leftist characters in uk comedy uh, was from this uh, sitcom in the 80s called The Young Ones, which was about, um, like, four students living together in a house. Um, and one of the students is uh, this character, Rick, who is, like, a, you know, a self-proclaimed anarchist uh, who's actually just, like, really soft and obnoxious and doesn't really know anything. And that show was written by, um, like, half or a good chunk of the writing team were, like, big leftists. So it goes to show, like, you can... There are things that you can poke fun at, but you would need to have some knowledge about them first in order to make it something that's worthwhile and the lasts. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I wonder, too, if, if that isn't bound up with the 
types of political ideologies that we're dealing with. Um, you know, leftism um, cares about critique, and to critique, you have to to know well, you know, the enemy, and to know well that you know with which you are uh, trying to to battle and overcome. And uh, in some sense, it seems to me that conservatism is is kind of about not reflecting. It's about ignorance or ignorance of uh, the legitimacy of those claims for equality and for sharing the power. And so in some sense, it has to not care about the truth because it's on the wrong side right, <laughs> of reality, it seems. Right? Well, yeah, I and, mean, if it's about... Um, well, so, so, so uh, let, me, let me jump in um, on that point. Um, because, like, you know, I, I joked uh, when um, we were kind of talking about doing this episode that, you know, I had a very esoteric training for my BA and my master's where I wrote... Uh, you know, theses on the philosophy of comedy and, and Russian literature. So now I'm like, I'm like pulling, uh, you know, it's like pulling the, the, the Batman suit out of like the, the <laughs> attic and blowing, blowing the dust off. I'm like, this is, this is the fucking time I was waiting for to use this knowledge. <laughs> so, not a baby, not a baby. So, uh, so like first I would definitely say that we should do uh, a follow up of some sort after we all watch like, what looked like just an absolutely horrible movie, the one that like Tim Allen joined. It was called like No Safe Spaces or something. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing like the trailer to it, and it just looked it looked so fucking bad. And I mean, I think for all the reasons that that you guys are pointing out, and I know that there's also like uh, there's that like comedy show, The Deplorables, that's like going around right now. Um, I mean, I, I, it really hasn't uh, kind of been talked about much in leftist circles, and I sure as hell don't want to be the one to uh, to report on it. But I, I imagine Ashling and uh, Nathan over at Current Affairs will have someone on it um, soon enough. But um, you know, for for you know, kind of thinking about comedy in like this kind of long, because it really is. It's like one of the hardest questions to solve in philosophy. Right. I mean, there there are so many different schools of thought because it's such a context dependent thing and it does evolve so much with um, kind of the shape of of society, cultural norms, um, the, you know, uh, structures of power and, and so on and so forth. And so from like Aristotle to Hobbes to um you know, like Freud and, and, and yada, yada, yada. I mean, like there are so many people who have tried to like kind of pinpoint what makes us laugh and it's never really a fully satisfying answer, but I do think there is kind of one school of thought that like is actually kind of applicable to, to like the question of why does conservative comedy suck? Um, and I mean, it's the kind of the, the, the school of thought about comedy that I kind of tend to gravitate towards myself. And it's basically called like the incongruity theory. Right? And, when, and this is like coming from people like Arthur Schopenhauer, Henri Bergson, and, and so on and so forth. But basically, like, the gist of it is kind of what we were already saying, right? Like, it, at its core, comedy is kind of like what emerges when there is an incongruity, when there's a clash between, like, how things are and how they should be, right? Or how things are or how we expect them to be. There a, has to be some sort of... A man in a fancy suit uh, getting hit with a pie in the face. Exactly. Right. I mean, like, you know, and, and this is kind of where you start, I think, getting into different categories of comedy because you you can get really deep with it and say, like, you know, comedy comes when there's an incongruity between, like, the natural order and the ways that, like, humans have fucked it up. 
or if you're talking about like satire, right? I mean, there's the question of like how kind of the ideal ideological ideal says society is supposed to be and how it how it actually um, ends up looking, right? So like. So, so that incongruity kind of um, theory, I think, uh, does have some kind of explanatory um, power. And in the context of like um, kind of satire as kind of being something that is that is intimately linked with like the kind of historical social conditions of a certain time and and place and that as you guys said, like kind of offers a critique of that and the critique is baked in to kind of recognizing that there is an incongruity here between um, how things should be and how they are or how the people in power um, want things to be and how we are experiencing them kind of on the ground. Like that is kind of really the the great, you know, uh, wellspring of, of I think a lot of satirical um, comedy. But like when with conservatives today – Right, like they they are kind of um, they're on the this side of the fence that is divided between like having a some sort of a critique of power, right? Like pointing out um, again that 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 there is an incongruity between the way things should be and the way they are, uh, versus like an embrace of power and a kind of punching down critique of the powerless, and this is like something that seems to be like just fully embraced by by conservatives and you know when you when you live in a society in in which power is so concentrated and so um dependent upon like widespread forms of 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 exploitation discrimination and domination like the odds just just aren't in your favor that the audience you're looking for will be on the same side of power as as your comedy is right and so i guess the the to to wrap up this long um rant is like the 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 genre of conservative comedy that I think I I do find funny, and I guess the first person who like comes to mind is like um, in like the the blue collar comedy tour. Like I love Ron White. I think he's hilarious, um, and my family loves him. And I grew up very Catholic, very conservative. So like there are kind of aspects to that sort of uh, dry um, conservative leaning comedy that I find like very funny, and it's. It goes back to that kind of incongruity theory, and it's something that we on the left make fun of a lot too, right? Because it's it's incongruous when someone is so kind of dominated by ideology or by um, kind of like just habitual routines of, you know, whether it's like kind of – you know, thinking that the Mueller report is going to like save everybody and you become so kind of um, – like mechanical, mechanical in the way that you have that faith that like that you don't even realize that you're walking off a cliff, right? And this is what Bergson like wrote about in the incongruity theories. He was like, you know, comedy comes when when there's an incongruity between the way that people are supposed to be elastic and learn and adapt to their situations and when they actually are just walking around being really fucking like rigid and mechanical. And I think that conservatives can point out when people get so mechanically locked into a certain way of um, thinking or a certain way of acting. And that's something that, you know, leftists also kind of make fun of, right? I mean, it's that sort of dogmatism and rigidity that makes what should be a very kind of um, 
uh, adaptive human thing into just kind of this uh, flat, dumb, you know, like witless uh, uh, archetype. Yeah, well, I guess right. that's... In the, in the same way that... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I guess it's also, for them, they the conservative comedians, I guess they probably think that, but then their perspective is reversed, right? So when they see they see the left or liberals, I suppose, as being inflexible in the sense they feel, oh, you know, I say this thing and then someone accuses me of being racist or, you know, someone's asking me to use a certain word instead of that certain word. And there are certain things that you can make where, you know, you can say that things are, you know, you can point to individual instances where someone's being inflexible or whatever. Um, but I think also it's just, I don't think it's going to date well because if you're getting really, really mad that someone asked you to like use a different word because it's more polite, then that's not really them that's being the inflexible one. And so I think a lot of this stuff that's is right. just not really, it might get a laugh among a certain audience for a certain amount of time, um, but I don't think it's going to date well. Right. It, it, it strikes me that you're talking about the difference between uh, that incongruity, which I would say can do a few things, right? The incongruity could um, snap you into thinking or snap you out of thinking, almost like a, a Zen Cohen can like snap you out of thinking and, and break, break the mold of kind of your just routine uh, expectations, thoughts about the normal um, and, and, and make you seeing something in a, in a fresh light. And so the kind of good humor I think we're talking about um, is helpful and insightful to kind of let you gain perspective, which is what I think uh, education often does. You see from a different perspective and then you, you, you see things in a new light. Whereas what you're talking about, um, Ashley, and I think is uh, mere kind of like sympathy or, or the kind of uh, affective response that say Trump, people on the right that love Trump, he, he's not satiric. He's just, he mocks and he's cruel. And so they kind of get off on uh, feeling that visceral response to the cruelty and the mockery that is its own kind of release from the rote way of thinking and the expectations that kind of can suppress and oppress. Um, but the, the, the conservatism that maybe Max was talking about being um, actually humorous seems to me to be illiberal in a way that might also be insightful in the same way that like a Ross Douthat is like terrible in many ways. But when he critiques liberalism, sometimes you kind of go, yeah, your solution's wrong, Ross. But like, I, yeah, I agree with that critique. Yeah. I mean, I think Ashley is absolutely right because this is, this is kind of the great historical joke of most conservative comedians today and not even conservative. Most a lot of the older comedians today have become have themselves become the punchline of like not understanding how comedy works, right? Because yeah, if I if I hear another old comedian like whine about how everyone's too PC today, I'm gonna lose my fucking mind because I'm like I'm like yeah, like I mean, comedy is always that sort of like I said that context dependent thing where you were kind of reaching into the um kind of the rich stuff in people's like you know the the gut of everyday life right that people are affectively psychologically culturally kind of tied to the things that that they are tied to enough that they can feel that that response to a seeming incongruity when a comedian 
points it out. But now you have a bunch of comedians who are themselves being so goddamn rigid in their understanding of what comedy is is like this ahistorical thing that that you know what's funny is just funny that they don't realize that they themselves have become these kind of like symbol smashing um monkeys who can only do one fucking trick and can't adapt to the world that they live in oh yeah i mean have you right. ever- and so instead of teaching us something no go ahead I ha- like have you ever tried to listen to like 10 15 minutes of lenny bruce it fucking sucks, man. No one has <laughs> ever enjoyed, like, a Lenny Bruce routine in the last, like, 35 years, I promise you. And it's not because, like, he wasn't important. It's just because it's so – his routines were so specific to a certain place and a certain time. Half of the jokes, unless you're very, very into the history of the time, you're not even going to get the references. And even the ones that you do, it's – more you're going to be like, oh, I get, I get that the thing. Like, it just comedy dates. And, you know, some types of comedy uh, date better than others. But I, like, I, I completely agree with you, Max, that it, like, there's so many comedians who seem to confuse um, our audience won't laugh at this thing because it's not PC with the audience doesn't laugh at that thing because it's just not funny anymore. And it's not because it's you know you're afraid to laugh it just isn't funny so you know for example um a lot of people were upset recently because um family guy the writers of family guy said they were gonna phase out uh gay jokes uh personally i was surprised that family guy was still running at all but um nonetheless (laughs) it's it's not because you're not allowed but it's just although obviously you know homophobia hasn't been completely eradicated it's there's not the taboo that makes the like the idea of just being gay in itself a funny thing in the same way that there was 20, 30 years ago, right? It's humor is context dependent and you're not going to get a laugh from the same things once the social issues change, right? Being gay has become more or less sort of normalized in the culture. So you can't just get a laugh from saying something's gay it's just not an inherently funny thing anymore right yeah i mean like to i guess like one one last thing that i would add to to um kind of build on ashling's point is like is like what do what do we mean what do what do these comedians mean when they say they're not allowed to say x anymore right i mean like there's there's such a deep sense of entitlement to people's laughter and to people's like adoration that again just misses the kind of I mean I think democratic um, core of what comedy is and how elusive it is and how much kind of attentive work you have to do um, to find it right I mean like what they're saying is that you know like oh I can't go in front of a club and just be like uniformly laughed at anymore or I can't say something on Twitter without people you know just ripping my shit. And it's just like, okay, but that's not, that's not like someone telling you, you can't say that. That's not like, you know, the government putting a muzzle on your mouth. That's just you facing the reality of, you know, like not, um, kind of being attuned to or working within kind of the, the, the feelings, sentiments and uh, ideas and values of the society that you live in. And like, I mean, if you want to keep doing that comedy, fine, fucking do it. But like, 
complaining that like you're just not getting the same kind of adoration and success that you did at a different time in a different place like you're you're not fucking entitled to that so stop stop like holding us accountable for the fact that you won't do your work as a comedian it's almost as if Amen, brother. They... if we if we don't if we don't give if we don't give Brian a second, he'll never talk this whole episode. So we got to give him a chance. He's a, he's a little, he's a, you know, he's like a Western cowboy, but he's a little slow on the draw. He would get killed in, in the, 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 you know, we would all outdraw him and kill him. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ryan. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's very kind of you. Um, the worst cowboy in the West, but, um, no, I, I, th- I think you're absolutely right, Max. And the, and I, I just wanted to, to draw out us a, 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 uh, specific example of this uh um you know the 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 over you know the 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 overarching um lesson you're talking about here is that comedy is difficult and it's culturally you know you have to have some cultural sensitivity you have to be in touch with the sort of norms of the moment and so on um and in 2007 Fox News tried to do this. This uh, they call it the Daily Show for conservatives, and um, it was called the Half Hour News Hour, and it ran for a few months, for, from February to September twenty seven, uh, two thousand seven, and um, it 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 you know it just got panned. Um, it the, you know the the. They didn't cancel it because of the reviews. They were can- they canceled it because of the viewership collapsed because it wasn't entertaining television, and it wasn't entertaining television because the jokes all sucked, and and they sucked because it was extremely lazy. And you can see that because they 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 ripped off the title of their uh their their show from a Canadian show, which is still going, I believe. It's called this this hour has twenty two minutes. Um, you know, like, which is sort of a satirical, like, like take on, um, from a Canadian show on, on, you know, sort of overhyped news broadcast, but like, you know, it's successful and been going since, uh, 1993. And they, you know, they, they saw the success of the daily show and they said, Oh, we want to replicate that. But they didn't understand or even try to replicate the effort it was like we're going to take the propaganda Fox News style in which we just sort of like do incredibly ham-fisted and cynical bad faith takes on everything, you know, global warming <laughs> and, you know, like oh we're going to recycle breast implants. I think that was one of the the jokes they had on there and it was just it just fell completely flat because they never studied the craft of comedy, which is a difficult thing. And that you know, it's I think it sort of emerges from all the stuff that that you're talking about. That you know, it's like this shit isn't easy. You know, like being a Trump lick spittle maybe takes its own sort of skill. And just saying Donald Trump right every day, like fuck you, liberals are wrong, Benghazi, fucking Hillary Clinton, whatever. Like, but if you're trying to be funny, that's a different kettle of fish. And um, you know that it just you, you can't just sort of jump in and thinking you're sort of ham-fistedly aping the forms of something like the Daily Show without any thought about the the the, the what makes it work. It's just going to fail. And it's even almost, in the context of, go ahead. It's 
almost as if when they when they want to just like do these jokes and be laughed at, it's almost as if they want like a space that's safe. Like uh, <laughs> I don't know what you would call that, but like I don't know. Yeah. It's almost like they won a participation trophy. That's right, yeah. just for attempting the comedy. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, yeah, you're absolutely well, right because and, and this is sh- this is like the same reason that you know a lot of uh, liberal comedy has really run out of steam. Like, I can't watch The Daily Show anymore because it's like, oh, haha, Trump is orange and wears suits that don't fit him. Like, I mean, like, you know, that just doesn't have yeah. any any gas anymore, right? I mean, there's no real kind of um, work being done there. And, you know, like, again, it's just this kind of like, um, you know, sense of sense of entitlement um, really at the heart of what people feel like they're supposed to get from comedy more than anything else. And, and I think that's tied to the fact that conservatives and liberals are capitalists and capitalists, besides not caring about the truth, are also lazy. And not just are they lazy, but in an right, like in an ever increasingly disastrous world where truth and action and like kind of all the things that comedy can inspire when properly done, which is like jolting people into realizing what's messed up, as you put Max, you know, like what should be and, and what's fucked up about the world. Uh, an ever increasing need for that kind of um, insight. You have less and less tolerance, I think, for the kind of status quo bullshit humor, whether it's conservative or liberal, that just acts as if all these terrible things aren't happening and just tries to be glib. That's a good, uh, I think that's a good capstone on the, that, that uh, topic. Shall we, shall we move forward to our second uh, question, which is that history for history's sake is a nightmare. Um, Max, you proposed this one, so maybe you should uh, you should b- bring it up. What what do you mean by history for history's sake, and why is yeah, that Max, a nightmare? My, my understanding is my understanding is you're trying to make history with this topic, so I hope you accomplish that. <laughs> <laughs> this is a historical first. Uh, I mean, we even started uh, we started the podcast with it, right? This is the first time Left Anchor has that's had right. <laughs> has had two interviewees on. Like, this is history, folks, and that's why you should first be listening. First time ever. It happened here. That's right. <laughs> Like, well, there are balloons falling in my office. Where the fuck did those even come from? Like, <laughs> um, well, like, so, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I think that they're actually like intimately connected, right? Because it's a, it's a really kind of big source of comedy. I think if you look at it in a certain way, or it can be just like really fucking, uh, dark, but I guess that's the, that's the beauty of comedy is it kind of, um, you know, uh, ballet steps its way through kind of, yeah, the, the, the worst and best kind of parts of, of being human. And, you know, I guess to go back to the question of like incongruity and like this, this incongruous, um, kind of notion of, of humanity, this, this, this notion of an incongruity between like, you know, humans as adaptive, um, flexible um, beings and human beings who are just so kind of mechanically reduced to flat characters, whether that be through archetypes, I mean, through ideology 
or through just kind of pure unthinkingness. So like if you're walking down a street and you're just so focused on your phone that you don't even see that you're about to walk into a fountain, like that would be what Bergson would write is like you're you're acting like a machine, right? And that's what you and that means that you're 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 incongruous um with kind of what a human being should be and that's why it's funny. Right? Like that's that's kind of what I'm seeing with this kind of just liberal obsession with um with history for history's sake. And so I guess what what I mean by that is probably best um kind of uh, uh concretized in uh, a couple of headlines that I pulled. So like I I I mean I write about kind of history itself um a lot like i mean like history is like uh as a concept history as kind of like a very political uh practice and a politically contested thing um but like i i said that on twitter that i really wanted to write a piece that you know would be about kind of like how the 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 like grotesque liberal world came to see um history for history's sake as like a good thing or just making history as a thing you know like that being a value in itself and this was in response to um you know this this reporter Tim Knowles tweeting out a, a Bloomberg article about Bill Gates uh finally joining Jeff Bezos as one of the world's two uh, hundred billionaires, right? And so, um, uh, Tom Knowles, sorry, uh, he tweeted out, uh, for the first time ever, the world now contains two people worth a hundred billion, with Gates at a hundred billion and Bezos at a hundred and forty six billion. Their combined fortune is worth more than the GDP of a hundred and forty three different countries. Like, like the, the, the very first part of that for the first time ever, like that's doing so much heavy ideological lifting that I think has just kind of become so accepted in um, kind of the, the, the neoliberal uh, order of things that, that we kind of don't stop to ask like why we're so obsessed with it and what it means that, that we are so unthinkingly um, kind of um, driven by this quest for historical firsts. Because I guess to, to flesh this out, there's another headline from Politico earlier this year that just like it had me in fits laughing, I guess, to back to the point of comedy. So this was by David Brown at Politico. And uh, the headline um, and, and subtitle um, read, How Women Took Over the Military Industrial Complex. For the first time, <laughs> the nation's defense hierarchy is no longer dominated by men. And I remember laughing because some uh, Washington reporter like tweeted this and was like who run the world and like with a with an emoji of like um high heels or something and i was like i was like jesus christ <laughs> right i mean like we're like we're so uh we're so focused on um kind of the the this notion of historical first that we don't even kind of uh, stop to think about just like how horrifying the history that we're making um actually is and I mean, like it, this can be—I mean, it can be as sinister as something like the military-industrial complex now being run by predominantly women, or it can be something a little more, I guess, like anodyne or or just kind of lame. Um, like when you watch the Oscars, right? I mean, like um, you know, I, I saw a CNN headline that I um, quoted for this, and it's—it was by Brian Lowry. And it was the, the the title of the article was the 2019 Oscars were marked by inclusiveness and firsts, um, and like I mean the the the, the cat like 
the category of uh, Oscar first has kind of become like an award in itself, right? And it's kind of become you know like one of the main reasons that people watch. Like the entire show has kind of become this this exhausted parody of itself, whose only real draw, you know, like does seem to come from touting these these historical milestones. And so I guess um, to kind of you know open this up, like. I know it's a kind of a difficult needle to thread because, like, obviously, equality is a principle that, like, liberals and the left are both nominally invested in, right? You know, in comparison to, like, the the gendered and racialized caste systems and, and social hierarchies that have just been so thoroughly imbricated in American life in the past, you know, you know in comparison to, to that then the principle of greater diversity and equality of access and assessment and yada 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 like that that's that's good that's that's better right it's a good thing that you know uh people of color are winning awards that were predominantly only won um by white people right i mean that, that like i'm not going to shit on that but um you know like it's it's obviously like that's not enough there's a lot more kind of working you know under under the surface here i think you know any any good leftist will point out that you know, making sure diverse identities are are represented in the halls of power doesn't doesn't really mean shit if the structural conditions and the the political and economic apparatuses of of, of governance stay where they are and keep reproducing you know like more widespread inequalities and injustices like upon which big dangerous things like white supremacy capitalist exploitation and and you know cis hetero patriarchy that that all those things are 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 predicated upon and so this is why we really you know have to kind of subscribe to the notion that it's not it's not about diversifying it's about decolonizing these kinds of um power structures and material institutions and so on and so forth so like so there's that really kind of essential core critique of um, kind of uh, the critique of diversity that I think should be included in the discussion. But I think what's more kind of um, obsessing me at the moment is like the the ideological function that historical firsts are, are serving in the kind of liberal mindset and in the kind of um, preservation of the kind of neoliberal hegemonic order. Right. I mean, because with each historical first, it seems to be like just a little extra notch in the kind of deep set belief that like we are, you know, approaching history's apex. Right. Or that like we have kind of reached the finish line of the end of history. And now all we need um, moving forward is for people from different identities and classes to kind of catch up and be included in that system. Right. So like the So there is this kind of really weird um, kind of obsession with uh, even fetishization of like history for history's sake um, that 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 really, I think, uh, says a lot about um, what we do and don't understand about history and our own kind of ideological uh, conditioning. So so that's kind of what I wanted to wanted to open up to um, to you all. Like what are what are your what are your thoughts on historical firsts and the obsession with them? That's great. There's a lot in there, Max. Thank you for that. That uh, just a, a few quick thoughts, if I if I may. Um, and, and I want to talk about what I think you're pointing out that is 
both flawed in the liberal and conservative um, kind of political ideologies and, and the, the assumptions, the metaphysical assumptions uh, and, and different uh, failings. So I, I think what you're pointing out in terms of, uh, let's start with the liberals, right? So so we, we all know kind of the, 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 the memes or the tweets with the claps and like hire more female prison guards or, or like, you know, the, the, the students that, are, that, I, that I teach are, are often at, at a loss when I say, is it good for feminism that there's a female CIA director that, that endorses torture? Is that like progress? And, and they really have a hard time with that. And, and it's because liberalism is so uh, individualistic that it doesn't understand that the reason that sexism and racism are bad is because those are indicative of broader infringements upon um, the equality of all human beings and, and, and the ways in which power causes anyone to suffer is a problem. And so, so just if you like replace who's doing the oppression uh, with somebody that is formerly not used to power, that doesn't make it good because we want all people to not be oppressed, right? So it doesn't really matter if someone's gain is a gain to a position of oppression, right? So, so like the, the liberal uh, inability to see, I think, structural uh, oppression and the ways in which like identity politics is problematic if you don't see how difference shouldn't just be valued, but also difference and its relationship to power and oppression needs to be understood, right? Um, so that's on that side. On the other side, of course, like conservatives, when they make um, illiberal critiques can sometimes be right about that. But what they, because they, they see a lot of times like what needs to be honored, right? And so, so the, the liberalism problem here, of course, with the first is in um, not knowing what to honor because liberalism is about procedures. It doesn't understand substance. It, it kind of wants to takes like any content or value judgment out of it. And it's all about proceduralism. So like the winning or the first or the most is, is all like that can be celebrated, right? Uh, and so it has this kind of neutrality that it pretends um, to, to, to have, right? So conservatives see that as nonsense. And, and so that, you know, that's why you get the partici participation trophy critiques because conservatives want to conserve what is honored, right? Going back to Aristotle, you honor, right? Uh, something that's excellent with respect to the essence of the thing that you're doing, right? So like uh, if you're playing the flute, right? You're, you're a great flute player, that, then, you, then you're virtuous with respect to playing the flutes and so on and so forth, right? Um, the problem with that is conservatives uh, don't understand the ways in which, right, uh, those with power shape the cultural norms about what should be honored. Uh, and, and so, so you have that, that, that other side of it. And so like leftists are trying to properly both um, respect how power shapes norms and, and values uh, without disregarding the ways that oppression, right, is not just a neutral, liberal, procedural thing, right? Yeah, I um one thing that kind of interests me about this is that um deciding like what firsts are noteworthy is inherently arbitrary, right? Because there's firsts going on all the time, right? Today was probably the first time I ate a cheese sandwich while wearing a certain pair of socks while uh listening to a certain kind of music, right? There's firsts happening all the time. So that's not an inherently noteworthy thing. Um so I think there's this sort of weird um pursuit of novelty to try and make things look like they're progressing when they're not and not really looking at the substance so i remember when um with uh, elizabeth holmes you know the the theranus uh scammer um even before um all that stuff uh unraveled i remember hearing uh people saying oh she's the youngest female self-made billionaire and i was like that's a lot of like that's a really specific <laughs> category. And then, of course, the next person after that is going to be, oh, this is the fe uh, youngest female self-made billionaire 
who wasn't a scammer. And, you know, it, it can keep, you can find any sort of specific category and just by a numbers game, you're always going to find, uh, you know, oh, this is the first person from such and such group to do such and such thing. Um, but you don't, you're not really answering the question of, you know, is this a substantively good thing? Uh, one thing it kind of reminds me of is it's, it's similar logic to when you have like a really shitty industry, or let's say that like the health, private health insurance industry in the U S and one of the criticisms you get is, Oh, but if you, uh, if you, uh, bring in, uh, public health care, um, we'll lose jobs. Right. And the answer to that, of course, is, well, yeah. you could have like a, you could have a puppy killing factory and you could shut it down and you would lose jobs. Um, that's not, you know, that's, that's not an inherently negative thing for society as a whole. You've got to look at these more substantive critiques and say, well, maybe we don't want to have a universe where people go to work in a puppy killing factory. Maybe. <laughs> I dare say, I dare say it would be positive to shut down the puppy killing factory. I'm just going to go out on a limb there. I don't, know. I don't know. I mean, I've heard some convincing arguments on either side. Yeah, personally, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm on the fence about <laughs> that's it. That's so. true. Got to take both sides into account. That's a fair point. Yeah, this um, this brings to mind two 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 as two aspects of this sort of like history fetishism that I that I've uh, noticed over the years. Um, the first one I would say is the presidency of James Polk, who is <laughs> I would say consistently ranked in the sort of top tier of American presidents. Because he was very effective at doing history, and one of one of his historical feats was he ginned up a war with Mexico and stole half their territory, um, and that was a great success. That's uh, that's that's Mexico, California, um, Utah, Colorado, um, um, Arizona, and uh, you know. He was uh, he was very effective at at just conquering this like uh, this very poor country, which didn't do anything to offend the the you know the the U.S. imperialists at the time. But getting his agenda done, he was really good at that, and so he was a great president. Um, he, he's he's why we have those hats. Make America Mexico again. <laughs> We should have know like that, uh, a, a sitcom called Queer as Polk, and it's just like a, a kind of <laughs> kind of kind of like introspective into kind of like the the zany kind of um, you know uh, happenings in the Polk administration. As like in the background, he's just like fucking annexing huge swaths of, of occupied territory and like just being really racist and a shitty human being. So um, someone get on that. Yeah, that's a and it's a good part of um, the uh, autobiography of Ulysses Grant, who was a like a quartermaster and a soldier in the Mexican American War, where he was just like, "This is, this is fucking bullshit. What we're doing down here? There's there's no reason for it." Um, Can we call him Odysseus S. Grant? Because that would be a first. <laughs> Odysseus. Um, but the second, the second thing that comes to mind is uh, um, 
this book by Lester Spence, which is called Knocking the Hustle. And it's about the uh, the sort of neoliberalization of um, black culture and specifically hip hop culture. Um, there's a and there's a song he gets into which is which is called like Hustle Hard, I believe, and it's all about you know basically grinding your way to you know making lots of money and um, you know sort of submitting yourself to business discipline, uh, whether that's in the form of, uh, you know, working for some sort of legal enterprise or just selling drugs or whatever. It's like, as long as you get that money, you're okay. And going through the, you know, the history of many, um, you know, black elected officials who have conducted what I would, you know, characterize as extremely racist policies of mass incarceration and, you know, welfare cuts and just sort of like oppressing the underclass um, through this kind of ideology. And I and I think it speaks to your, to your point, Max, about how, um, you know, there's a there's a lot to be said about identity representation, you know. Like it's good to have the first black president. It's good to have, you know, the first woman president if that happens to be the case. Um and so on and so forth, you know, the the first like was it Leon Blum in in uh in France, the first Jewish uh prime minister of France. Uh but like that's not enough. You, you you have to couple it to a structural understanding of politics to actually achieve the egalitarian outcomes, which the, you know, sort of uh, anti-racism project is sort of aimed at. Um, and you can't, you, ca- you can't just rely on, on, on people being the right shade or whatever to, to achieve that. And in fact, it's a danger um, if you aren't careful because people can be bought off. You know, I mean, and th- and this is sort of the flip side of the of the egalitarian ethos is that black people, women, uh, you know, brown people can be just as corrupt and murderous as as the worst white people. You know, Cory Booker taking tons of money from big pharma. And uh, defending Bain Capital in 2012 under the relentless assaults of Barack Obama, um, and so you know, it, it's like you you got to keep those two things in mind at the same time, and and it's difficult, you know, and 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 again, I, identity matters. It really does, you know. I, like I think back on that uh, that 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 picture that that hung on the wall of the Obama White House of. Uh, there's like a five-year-old kid who was like feeling the hair of Obama, you know, just just is like, oh yeah, oh, this is just like mine. That, like that's just an extraordinarily powerful symbol. Or him sitting in the bus that Rosa Parks uh, sat in. But at the same time, you actually have to do the egalitarian policy, and um, you know, there there's there like. They got to mesh together. I think it, um, also, even with that um, represent, 
representation, it's interesting what types of representation or where we're drawn towards looking at representation. I don't remember ever seeing something about, oh, here's this great uh, female or uh, gay uh, union leader, for example, right? It's always in um, <laughs> yeah. very specific um, sort of neoliberal centers of power. Um, but even if you want to talk about the importance of representation, different identities, it, uh, it matters um, where you uh, where that attention is drawn, right? Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think it's fact, a great the, point. The, go ahead. Oh, um, so yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's um, I think that's a really great point about um, kind of that. That again, it speaks to the kind of um, the ideological work that this obsession with historical forces or first is really doing, right? I mean, like Ashling said, like the fact that that only certain firsts are really kind of being um, held up and, and within certain contexts, like, and, and, and held up in a very certain way. I mean, like they're, they're again, like that's, that's kind of like what's kind of been uh, stuck in my head for all this time. Cause I've written, I've written kind of versions of this article before. I mean, like one of the thing, one of the first things I ever wrote for the baffler was this, uh, this piece called um, 2016, a liberal odyssey. And um, it was about like, you know, because I was feeling the very same way about um, that I'm feeling now about when people would be like, how could how could Trump voters say this? It's 2016 or like it's 2016. We shouldn't have to deal with X or yada yada. I'm like. It's like the, the 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 it's 2016 thing doesn't it doesn't mean shit, right? I mean, but it belies this kind of um, again this 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 necessary fetish that people make out of history that kind of allows them to um, I don't know I think just kind of continue to be kind of good abiding liberal subjects and and I think like one of the um, kind of reasons that i find it to be like so sinister along with like the the what we've already talked about it's like you know how it how it just kind of reinscribes the existing um you know inequalities and injustices of the kind of you know hegemonic neoliberal order uh yada 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 and it, and it kind of serves to buttress that order itself so like that's obviously you know a huge problem but like even even underneath that Right. Like it, it does kind of bear uh, some sort of like allegiance to this this inherent kind of conservatism and this conservative way that liberals kind of and the liberal people within the liberal mindset kind of tend to think about uh, progress itself. Right. I mean, in the same in the same yes. way that, um, you know, like conservatives are are always pining for like a a paradise lost right a time when you know um society made more sense to them that we have to kind of return to like the liberal mindset has a very similar like it's almost a mirror image way of understanding the future as kind of being this um this thing that we are always on the right side of right like there's all this is all always couched in like we are on the right side of history and what that fundamentally misses is that history's right side is always determined by a vicious and an endless political struggle and it so it seems like yes. kind of thinking about history in these kinds of ways as just like a a thing whose 
um, whose end has already been um, preordained and who's like kind of uh, the, these historical firsts just kind of serve to remind us that we are in fact at this kind of, you know, fantastical endpoint of history. What we're also doing there is that, you know, we're also kind of um, genuflecting before this notion that history itself is not and does not need to be fought for and and fought for over and over again, um, day after day, and that the right side of it is what we can make of it. Right. No, it's it's almost like Max, uh, you know, I was reading John Dewey not that long ago, and he, and he made an interesting point about um, there are some liberals who are once radicals or some radicals who become liberals. And, and what, what he was trying to say is that, like, at some point, what they were offering politically was radical, but then they won, and that was the end of the horizon of possibility. And so, for, as, as maybe a poor example, let's say Obamacare at one point was like, whoa, that's never going to happen, right? Okay, then it happened, and then the person that was pushing for something new and perhaps breaking through a, a norm though that person then and those people then became conservative and like okay we've achieved that that's good that's what we want that's it that's it game over right and and so like what was once more um radical becomes somewhat conservative and becomes liberal and like that that then is the order to be defended and progress is really just keeping that established order as kind of like so even these firsts are all within the same parameters of the same kind of old identity politics of like tokenism and like whatever because like that's progress right uh, and, and so uh, th- there's something about the conservatism you're talking about that strikes me as that kind of complacency that comes from what perhaps was once a struggle and, and a more radical position that then stops fighting because there was something accomplished and that was just enough. I have a comment on this. Go ahead. Uh, Francis Fukuyama, more like Francis fuck you, Yama. This is a left. That's, that's got to be the open. That's gotta be the open. <laughs> this is a left. This is a left anchor first, folks. Uh, we got we got Fukuyama. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we got Fukuyama puns in the mix. More like Francis Fukunama. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I mean, it's funny too because, like, I mean, uh, this this um. This article that I wrote for Boston Review, like back in the fall, um, on Francis Fukuyama and on the end of history kind of thesis, uh, just went live online um, today, and it's kind of like, you know, it 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 it's all about this, and I guess it kind of even adds to the this this like gumbo of shit that we're talking about that like we are also kind of like living in a time where. It's like only one side recognizes that history is something that is fought over. So, like, when we see, like, you know, just just absolute shit ghouls like um, like Dinesh D'Souza kind of, like, going on book tours and talking about how the, the left are the real Nazis, right? And, like, you know, when, when Trump, like, kind of tweets out that, like, Frederick Douglass is his BFF and they hung out last week, right? I mean, like... As a historian, it's kind of like you you watch this and your impulse is to just be like to laugh it off. And that's what I think most 
people do. Their response is to be like, oh, how funny, like, these idiots don't know the real kind of, like, history. But, like, I mean, the fact is, is that, like, they are, they are pushing a different version of history through sheer blunt force um, and to try to kind of uh, establish it as having some sort of authority, at least enough authority to kind of um, erode the kind of hegemony of historical record that that we are kind of used to. And we can't just laugh that off. The stakes are actually much higher than I think we, we think they are. And the thing that I was kind of adding in the, the Boston Review piece is that the very, the very kind of mechanisms of historical memory itself are actually kind of being changed as we speak. Like they are, they are being attacked and they are also kind of just being reformatted by our connection in our our connectivity in kind of the 21st century media landscape and it's a landscape that someone like Trump is much more adept at navigating and i guess to make that concrete what i mean is that our capacity for like long term historical memory is evaporating before our eyes right i mean i can hardly remember you know what happened 2 weeks ago right i mean because like everything just moves so quick I mean, there's so much fucking i mean content. max I- to be fair, I don't even remember what we started talking about in this episode. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but, but like, again, like in that sort of um, in that kind of landscape where you do not have the kind of um, long term historical memory to really work in your favor. Someone like Trump can just thrive because he never lets history hold him accountable for anything. Right. I mean, he just keeps on chugging forward and like you know leaving shit in his wake and we're just like trying to catch up right i mean there is no kind of like system of accountability that that a long-term historical memory maybe used to have at any point where you know a, a question about what someone said at another time contradicts what they're saying now like that has no purchase anymore and it has but to do like, with kind oh, that's of so interesting i think yeah, that sorry. liberals do that too, to an extent as well. I mean, look at how someone like Martin Luther King has been turned into someone who basically um, just was nice to white people until white people gave uh, black people civil rights, right? And look at how... And Ashley, did you know that everyone everyone loved Martin Luther King all the time? Oh, yeah. Everyone, no, I, he had no yeah. conflict. I love... There's no, I, no issues. I so much love the people who are really mad at Black Lives Matter, but think they would have marched with Martin Luther King. <laughs> that is my favorite shit. That is amazing. But yeah. like, I think you've always had this. Um, so yeah, for example, um, if people think uh, in a Western, maybe not in Europe so much, but in the US about socialism, they might think about like the USSR or, or Mao's China or something like that. But I mean, even in the US where you have not had a socialist government, I mean, you've had, you know, massive, you know, uh, union movements and workers rights that gave people, you know, the weekend and uh, got rid of child labor and, and stuff like that. And there's a lot of radical history that kind of gets um, rolled over. And I think it's yeah, I think Max really has a point that we don't we talk too much about history as a linear thing. There's a book that I want to read that I have not uh, read yet. It's called a backlash. I think um, I forget the name of the author, um, but it's basically a history of uh, feminism and women's rights, but specifically in terms of each time women's rights will roll back. So it's sort of, instead of uh, uh, portraying things in a, a linear fashion, 
Um, it looks at right. cases where, like, every time there were women's rights and then the backlash and then the, the way um, they could be rolled back. And I think it's always worth remembering that, yeah, things can be rolled back. Things aren't linear. Um, and you have to keep fighting for stuff. No, that's interesting. And that shows that the struggle, uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about political possibility and reading like Ernst Bloch, who talks about how people tend to think of the past as a simple trajectory and they forget that there's rupture. And so things that people think impossible just happen all of a sudden and dramatically change things, of course, brought about by struggle and, and, and contestation and so forth. But yeah, I guess it's, it's important to realize that, that things can go backwards as well. Um, but, uh, no, that's very good. Yeah. And, um, I think this is a good, we're probably, uh, over an hour here. Um, good, good spot to finish up. Any last comments before we, um, uh, quit here? Things you want to plug or articles we've written? Um, I've noticed that, uh, so Nathan J. Robinson, my lovely uh, editor at uh, Current Affairs um, has, I think uh, Current Affairs now has almost 100,000 likes on Facebook. Um, and he was quite happy about nice. that. So if you can go uh, like it on Facebook and subscribe, subscribe to the print edition uh, if you can. It's really pretty and really nice. And I write really stupid things in there. And uh, it's, a, it's a really good sign of an editor where they let you do your stupidest ideas. That's that's the sign of a of a you know a, a, a true gentleman and a scholar and an editor. Um, so, <laughs> I've, I've yeah. got an article coming up in the next issue, I believe. So uh, definitely subscribe to Current Affairs. It's good stuff. Yes, and and also, you know, no one believes what you're saying. It's, it's beautiful to have humility and self-deprecation though. So thank you. for that. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so 100% agree, um, that everyone should subscribe to current affairs, um, and listen to their, their wonderful podcast as well. Um, the episode I did with Nathan was, uh, was recently unlocked and, um, yeah, I just, I think, Nathan, Ashling, um, the Briannas, like everyone there is just doing, um, incredible work. Um, Sparky Pete. So, so definitely go check out current affairs. Um, check out the baffler. Um, you know, that's, that's where, uh, my column is. We're putting out really great, um, great stuff all the time. Um, and yeah, I mean, um, like I said uh, before, if, um, you know, if you want to, you know, the, I always love kind of doing podcasts like this because it gives me a chance to kind of uh, just just nerd out a bit um, in a different register. But like on my podcast, like you know, I'm talking to workers, I'm talking to labor organizers. Like it has a, it has a different tenor, and um, you know, I don't get yeah. to go on a long you know rant right, about right why yeah, can yeah. what why conservative comedy sucks. So, um, you know, if you, but uh, so I appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you if you guys listening want to. Um, you know, also mix into your your media diet uh, a podcast where we have kind of 
um, in-depth, uh, human, um, kind of deep conversations with workers around the country. Uh, we talk about their lives, um, their jobs, their dreams, their, their struggles. Um, I would definitely, uh, say, yeah, check us out. We just released a really special episode, um, where, um, I interviewed my dad and my three tios, his, his, his three siblings. And we talk about the family history from them, sleeping on the same bed in a wooden shack in Tijuana to kind of where they are today. And it's a, it's a really great conversation. So um, check us out. That's awesome, Max. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a great podcast. Check it out. And Max, you know, if you ever want to come back and you just, you got me all excited when you dropped names like Bergson and Aristotle and Hobbes, I just got all, you know, all, uh, all tingly. So <laughs> just come back on anytime. And, uh, Anyway, Ashley, you you know it's not a first because we did have Vanessa B on, so we had a, we had a you know a current affairs person on already, but it's the second the second guest from current affairs, so that's pretty good. And and you have a, a very plummy, wonderful voice. And both of you, I, I got to say, I just um, you know I'm kind of I'm coming to love with with all of your voices. So uh, come on, come on uh, the pod a- anytime you want, and uh, yeah, we would love to have you. Yeah. Oh yeah, thanks for having us on, guys. Thanks very much. All right, take care. Cool. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going. 